This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, the data on food imports is out and there's no hiding what's driving the epidemic of lifestyle diseases in the region. And basically it's a tsunami in the in the whole Pacific. It's basically processed food which is killing the people, killing the masses. We'll head to Indonesia for the latest developments on the New Zealand pilot kidnapped by West Papua separatists and lending a helping hand. Solomon Islands National Airlines steps in as Vanuatu faces an aviation crisis. We've done already, I think, two flights from uh, Auckland to Vila and from uh, Brisbane to Vila. And we've got another one planned for tomorrow from Auckland to Vila. We'll have more on those stories and, and others coming up. I'm Evan Wasuka. But first, a group of former Pacific leaders have launched a blistering attack on Australia over the AUKUS partnership with the United Kingdom and the United States. The group includes Marshall Islands' Hilda Haini, Palau's Tomirengo Masa, Tuvalu's NLS Opuanga, and Kiribati's Anotetong. And they say the staggering $368 billion allocated to nuclear-powered submarines could be better spent on supporting climate change initiatives. They're also accusing Australia and its two allies of triggering an arms race and demonstrating a complete lack of recognition for the climate change security threat faced by island nations. Joining us this morning is one of the signatories, former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong. Maori, and welcome to Pacific Beat, uh, Mr. Tong. Uh, Maori, and good morning to you. Now, uh, Mr. Tong, Australia and the other countries say that AUKUS doesn't violate the Rarotonga Treaty, which is the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone, uh, because we're talking about nuclear-fueled uh, submarines rather than weapons. Do you agree with this position? Well, I think uh, one of the, 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 the aspects of the, the treaty is really nobody, not many people, I don't know if our leaders are aware of the full content of the, the, the agreement and what's intended. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about uh, consultation and um, uh, awareness. Does it violate the treaty in, in, your, in your opinion? Well, it has the potential to do that. I mean, what, what from what we hear that's been planned, there are... Um, uh, nuclear submarines under consideration. I think, um, you know, the, that would seem to be in, in contradiction to the division of our former leaders of a peaceful and a harmonious uh, Pacific. I think uh, the history of of uh, nuclear, uh, what happened with uh, the nuclear tests uh, and uh, the past experiences with World War um, Two, and you know, that's something that uh, we never want to have a repeat of. Now, Mr. Tong, one of the reasons behind AUKUS is that it's seen as something that's necessary for peace and security. Uh, do you feel that this is AUKUS necessary for the Pacific's future peace, security, and prosperity? You know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure we see things from a different perspective, and the perspective of the Pacific Islands is very clear that the greatest security threat has always been climate change and. Uh, you know, to, to go in a different uh, direction would appear to detract from the the, fo- the focus that we'd hoped our region and the, and the global communities as a whole would focus on, which is about trying to deal and tackle with the, the, the climate crisis, which has the potential to, uh, of, uh, you know, really destroying our homes and uh, eventually the, the planet as a whole. Mm. 
Mr. Tong, other Pacific countries like Fiji and uh, even Cook Islands, they say they're reassured by Australia and others around AUKUS and they haven't raised any opposition to having nuclear-powered subs in the region. Um, I, I, I wonder why... If, if AUKUS is such a problem, why, why are these countries uh, okay with it and, and not opposing AUKUS? I, I don't know the level of consultation. I know, I, I understand that they've had closer consultations with the, uh, the U.S. and uh, possibly Australia on the details of what's involved in AUKUS. And, um, and I, think, I think this is what, what is missing because there needs to be wider consultations so that other Pacific leaders are fully aware and the rest uh, the Pacific community is about the people in the Pacific. Well, what AUKUS has the potential to do is if it's going to be a security, provide security for the Pacific, then I believe the people need to be aware so that they can be, go along with it. But I think it's, uh, again, it's about the consultation process, which is uh, perhaps needs a bit more uh, uh, you know, why did their consultation? Mm. Yes, speaking of consultation, last week, Cook Islands Prime Minister, Mark Brown, he had raised concerns about AUKUS and that it might contravene um, uh, the Treaty of Rarotonga. Then he traveled to the United States and now he's, he's, he's made a public statement saying he's reassured. Do you think that change in opinion came about because there was more details, more consultation uh, when he was in, in the United States? Well, obviously, <clears throat> obviously, something has made him change his mind. And I think uh, if it's for good reason, then there are no risks. And, and in, in fact, uh, the vision under the, uh, the Rarotonga Treaty and uh, for a nuclear-free Pacific will remain. Then obviously, I think the rest of the Pacific and the people need to know so that. And of course, if we were aware of all of the details, perhaps we would not be issuing a statement like that. Now, the, the Pacific Elder Statement ha, has just come out, uh, and this has been uh, the, the, the news about AUKUS has been out for a while. H- has there been a lot of thought by Pacific Elders about the position on, on AUKUS? And, and if you can share us about the, the process and how Pacific Elders came about with this, uh, with this statement. Well, the, uh, the statement is based on what is in the public, what information is available <clears throat> in the public domain. And of course, obviously, what's happened is there's a lot more information that's available and uh, perhaps could put the minds of um, people in the Pacific at rest. And I, perhaps this is what's happened with the, uh, the, the Prime Minister to, from the Cook Islands uh, after consultation, closer consultation with the United States. And so perhaps this is something that is needed, further awareness so that uh, we can all be reassured that it's not harmful to, to our peace and security in our part of the world. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka, and on the show with me this morning is the former president of Kiribati, Onoti Tong, who's also a, a Pacific elder, and we're talking about uh, AUKUS and security in the Pacific. Now, uh, Mr. Tong, do you think the Pacific Islands Forum should have a, a greater say in, in, in AUKUS and what's happening in terms of uh, international uh, security and how it affects the region? Well, I think it's the the old story of us being in the middle and everything being discussed around us. I think uh, the Second World War happened without any consultation with us, but it absolutely in, uh, impacted on our on our people. Uh, the climate change is something that's discussed on the other side of the world. It's none of our making, but it's going to destroy our homes. And I hope focus is something that would uh, not do that. But again, it's being done around us, but not with us. And I think this is something that needs to be uh, maybe revisited. 
the the other aspect of this is the amount of money involved in this nuclear powered submarine uh, deal. It's we're talking about three hundred and sixty eight billion dollars, which is a, is a huge amount of money to be spent on security and defense. Do you think that could be better spent on climate change adaptation and mitigation in, in the region? Oh, absolutely. I mean. Um in the, as, a, as a region, the Pacific has been for, for many, many years, as, lo- as much as 30 years, trying to get uh, some kind of a, a global agreement on the, the loss and damage so that we can do something about repairing what it is that's, uh, that are being damaged as a, on the, with the impacts of climate change, the future, our future. Many of the countries on the front line, like Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, the low-lying atoll islands, their future is going to be totally jeopardized because of uh, the impacts of climate change. We need huge resources in order to build our climate resilience to, to survive into the future. And uh, we've been looking around for the resources, so, but they've not been available. So they are indeed available, but not for our purposes. Now, Mr. Tong, you've been at the, you, as the president of Kiribati, you were at the front line of this campaign on climate change across the globe, building up that awareness. Looking on as a Pacific elder now, how do you feel the world has progressed towards uh, dealing with climate change? Are you more optimistic or what's your feelings now? Uh, well, I think uh, it's so inspiring to see a lot more action, uh, people, the young people taking up action. But I think one one only needs to read the um, the reports of the IPCC and what the, the, IPCC, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is saying is nothing has changed. We're still heading towards that off the cliff, off the edge. And uh, the future of countries like, like Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands is now predicted that before we were, the prediction was that we would survive until the end of the century. Now it's being moved forward to by 2060, our islands will be submerged, indicating that we are actually damaged at a higher rate than what was only uh, uh, estimated. Now, Mr. Tong, finally, I just want to ask you about the Pacific elders. Now, some would say that uh, the Pacific elders are no longer elected leaders of their countries. So the important thing, I guess, is why should the public listen uh, about what the elders are saying and their statements? Uh, what's your thoughts about this? Well, I think the difference between elected officials, uh, elected <clears throat> parliamentarians and uh, the non-elected former leaders is that we've had the benefit of experience. We no longer are guided by the political um, you know, the, the priorities. Our focus is on the people. I mean, I'm talking about the future of my 20-odd grandchildren. And it's not about whether I get re-elected next time or not. So I believe we are talking about real issues, about real people, not about uh, to be influenced whether we win the next election or we do not. And I think that is something that uh, we we can put into the debate, which may not always be available for uh, elected officials. Mr. Tong, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. That's Anote Tong, former Kiribati president and a member of the Pacific Elders. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka on this Wednesday morning. Now, it's been, a lo- it's been long known that unhealthy food is one of the main drivers of the region's epidemic of non-communicable diseases like diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. Now, the transition from the tra- traditional food diets to those based heavily on processed foods can be seen in the change of foods that Pacific Highlands countries import and export. The data is contained in the new Pacific Food Trade Database, and those behind it believe it can be used to help improve people's health. Liam Fox with this report. 
Fiji and its fight with diabetes is held up as an example of the impact non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, are having on Pacific Island countries. Chairman of Diabetes Fiji, Tabish Akbar, says everyone is affected by it in some way. In Fiji, in the 60s, you probably had about 5% of the population with diabetes, right? Which is still quite high. But today, you're looking at close to 30%. So if there's a group of three people out there, it's most likely that one of them has diabetes. For him, it all comes down to food. If we look at uh, the last few decades in Fiji and throughout the Pacific, it is the explosion of foods from the supermarket rather than from the market which has led to a lot of the NCDs and led to the issues that we, we are facing today. And basically, it's a tsunami in the, in the whole Pacific. It's basically processed food, which is killing the people, killing the masses. Now, that correlation between food and NCDs has been laid out in a new database on the Pacific's food trade. That is, the types of foods individual countries and the region as a whole import and export. Dr Tom Brewer from the Australian Centre for Ocean Resources and Security led the team that pulled the Pacific Food Trade Database together. The amount of highly processed food that's driving a non-communicable disease crisis in the region is just spiking in a fairly alarming way, particularly from East and Southeast Asia, but also some large quantities coming from Australia and New Zealand, which surprised us. And what sort of processed foods are we talking about here? Uh, classic noodles, instant noodles, lots of soft drink, um, lots of highly processed fatty meats are still entering the Pacific. Um, it's, and a lot of hidden stuff that we're now working through to kind of tease out the various components of these processed foods to see exactly what's going on. The database shows imports of unhealthy food from Southeast Asia grew from 1,300 tonnes in 1995 to 64,000 tonnes in 2018. On a sub-regional level, both Micronesia and Polynesia currently import around 85 kilos per person per year, compared to 50 kilos in the late 1990s. There's also a trade of unhealthy food among Pacific Island countries, primarily from Fiji, and it has risen from 2,500 tonnes in 1995 to nearly 12,500 tonnes in 2018. Dr Brewer hopes governments and NGOs will use the database to better inform their responses to the NCD epidemic. I think that's the primary value in the database. Here are the numbers in trends across over 500 commodities, stable, reliable data that that is very difficult to refute. Where, Where previously that wasn't there, it was more observation and anecdote and local awareness. But it's the best we have now. And at gives great opportunity for the region and countries to to actually move forward and and push their own agendas. The food trade database also illustrates another alarming trend, the region's already massive and growing dependence on imports of food like wheat, rice and meat. That's Liam Fox with that report on the staggering data coming out of that food database. (music) 
Indonesian police have arrested a West Papuan separatist fighter over the kidnapping of a New Zealand pilot earlier this year. Captain Philip Mer- Mark Mertens was taken hostage and his plane was set alight by members of the West Papua Liberation Army, the armed wing of the Free Papua Movement. Indonesia's government say it's been working to ensure the pilot's safe release. A Liberation Army member with the initials YL has been arrested for his alleged involvement in the kidnapping. Today, for more, we're joined by the Executive Director of Amnesty International Indonesia, Usman Hamid, to discuss the latest developments. Mr. Hamid, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. (laughs) Now, is it good news that Indonesian police have arrested one of the rebels involved in this kidnapping? Well, I I believe that uh, most important... uh, a, a policy is to rescue Philip Martin uh, in a safe uh, circumstances. And I think rescuing him from the highland in Papua is likely to be a high-risk operation. We're not sure that whether the, the, the person who was arrested by, um, by the authorities will lead us to a, a safe release to Philip Martin. So I think um, the... The abductors must be more cautious after their member was being caught. I think it is crucial that any any rescue attempt is carefully planned, carefully executed to minimize the risk of harm of the pilot and to all involved. Now, coming to the pilot, uh, Philip Mertens, what is his condition? Does Amnesty International know what sort of state uh, he, he is in right now? A couple of weeks ago, we... We, we got verified evidence that he is fine. And um, we haven't got any latest update, but we've been in uh, close communication with uh, several key uh, contacts of Amnesty on the ground, including those who have connection with the rebels. So, so far, we, we, I think we, we are in a situation where we, we call for... Uh, we call on government to, to you know, to, to persuade the rebels in a peaceful manner and to prioritize nonviolent approach to rescue the hostage. We have reminded government and authorities that it is important to, to handle the situation in a way that is both safe and effective and prioritizing, again, the, the safety of the pilot and the civilians in, in, in the highlands of Papua. I... I, I, I um... I guess the, his safe return is is the uh, priority for everyone involved in this situation. Now, the incident, the kidnapping happened back in February. It's been more than two months since then. More than two months. Is this a, is this right. a big worry for Amnesty International? We are very worried. I think we have called on uh, the rebels to release him unconditionally, immediately. I think more buying time for negotiation instead of, you know, launching immediate and risky military operation to rescue the hostage uh, is, is, is something that we uh, really want government to take into account. Um, <clears throat> this can make it difficult for, you know, uh, for the security forces to move quickly and effectively given the terrain, terrain difficulties in, in, in Papua, which may increase the risk of, of casualties. What's the best way forward in this very delicate situation? How do you think the government and the uh, the groups involved can progress this forward? 
the last year, there has been a, a series of uh, meetings of what we call exploratory talks toward a peace uh, process or a peace negotiation in Papua. Some of the government uh, uh, bodies have been involved in, in that series of talks, including the pro-independent groups. And I, I think I would uh, call on government to make use of that series of talks to address uh, the hostage-taking of a New Zealand pilot by, by, you know, by, by continuing to talk with the rebels, I believe it would be the best way to make sure the safety of the pilot. Have, have there been any indication from, from the, the separatists that they're willing to talk and there's a possibility of a release coming up at some point? Few days ago, they released uh, a video statement uh, highlighting that they are open for negotiations, and I think that is uh, a very positive development. And I I do hope that um, both conflicting parties, uh, the rebels and Indonesian government, will proceed uh, that openness to a more um, to a more uh, effective confidence-building measures in order to, I think, in a short term, to release the pilot safely and in, in, and in a long term is to handle the situation of IDPs in several districts in Papua, as well as to release all political prisoners in order to, to explore the talks for peace in Papua. Now, the West Papua Liberation Army say its reason for carrying out this uh, kidnapping was to draw attention to the injustices occurring in, in that area. Uh, and in exchange for the pilots release, they want the UN to facilitate peace talks and promote independence for West Papua. What's Amnesty's view on the situation uh, more broadly? I think Amnesty's views on uh, the situation of Papua more broadly is we call on Indonesian president to uh, to, to be committed to his pledge to invite High Commissioner of Human Rights uh, uh, Commission, Human Rights Council, to, to visit Papua and to assess uh, the situations of human rights in Papua. For, based on amnesty uh, research, uh, in the last three to four years, the human rights condition in Papua is entering into an exceptional circumstances, uh, and it is very worrying. Civilians are, are clearly the most affected, but those who died among the armed forces were also not small. Various uh, data that we have uh, launched, we have published uh, in Indonesia, show symptoms of a serious armed conflict escalation. For example, from, from 2018 to 2022, there were at least 91 cases of extrajudicial killing involving military, the police, prison officers, as, as well as a Papuan pro-independent groups that killed at least uh, 177 civilians. That's not include uh, several deaths uh, taking place in this year, in January, February, and March. So the total number of civilians who were killed uh, because of this escalating armed conflict is almost 200. And I think the number of the armed forces uh, who became the victims, the number of uh, pro-independent groups uh, who are dead because of insurgency-related violence, were also not small. I think 
uh, this is the time for Indonesia and for the rebels to come to the table to talk and to improve the human rights situation. We have called on government uh, during a presidential visit last week, early last week, to address human rights uh, violation, both past abuses as well as ongoing abuses in Papua, and making sure that those perpetrators of uh, human rights violation are being taken into court. Um, justice and accountability have to be delivered for the victims and their relatives. Up until now, we haven't uh, we haven't seen any significant progress in terms of uh, justice and accountability for human rights violation. Uh, meanwhile, the escalations of armed conflict uh, have been, you know, indisputably uh, in an increased escalation. And therefore, apart from calling for justice and accountability for human rights violation taking place in Papua, we also call on government uh, and rebels to start exploring talks, exploring peace talks uh, for, for, for peace in Papua. And I think we have a very urgent uh, matter today with the hostage, uh, with the pilot, uh, New Zealand pilot uh, uh, being uh, uh, under hostage by, by the rebels. So I think there are some issues which, uh, which I believe to be showing the urgency of, of a peace talk, the urgency of improving human rights situation in Papua. Number one is the situation of IDPs. I think UN have noted at least 60,000 to 100,000 people being displaced in several districts in the cent central Papua, central highland of Papua, uh, as well as in, in West Papua. Also, a uh, special reporter on, 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 on extrajudicial killing have highlighted uh, several killings in Papua uh, that killed uh, civilians, including uh, children, that needs uh, attention from, from, from the government. We, <clears throat> we understand that uh, the, the three Papuan movement have been trying to, to draw international attention uh, to, to the situation of human rights in, in West Papua, including to to you know to to listen to their demands for self determination or for independence call we have no position on the status of papuan province or or regarding uh, the the the, the self determination but we uh, we have defended uh, several papuans to express their independence aspiration in a peaceful manner and we have called Mr. on Man, in thank, thank you very much for joining us this morning you're welcome on Pacific Beat, uh, time has come for us, and time to move on to our next story. Uh, that Thank was so Usman much. Hamid with Amnesty International in Indonesia. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time we go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show, Wednesday nights at 7png time on ABC Australia. It's that time of the morning to take a look at all the news and uh, stories happening all across the Pacific. And on this wet Wednesday, Melbourne morning, I'm joined by Kyle Evans in studio. Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Evan. Happy Wednesday. 
Yes, it is. So let's take a look across the region. And we'll start off in Fiji, where nightclubs might have to wind back their opening hours. Uh, what's that about? That's right. So the Fiji coalition government will carry out a review uh, of all nightclub opening hours, as well as uh, a review into the permitted hours in which liquor can be sold. So this is reported by the Fiji Village, and it follows a request for a review by the Fiji Police Force to uh, address some of those ongoing assaults, violence and, uh, and robbery concerns. Uh, the PM, uh, Fiji PM, Sidavani Rambuka, he didn't mint his words on the matter. Here's what he had to say. Currently, nightclub opening hours are authorized from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. for designated zones. In recent years, there have been numerous reports of brawls, robberies, and attacks in the areas around nightclubs in designated zones in the early hours of the morning. This has also resulted recently in some loss of lives. The Fiji Police Force made submissions for review of the opening hours for nightclubs given ongoing law-breaking violence and robberies are cause for concern and pose a risk to the safety of citizens. Yeah, so very much didn't mince his words uh, on the matter there. Obviously comes after two men uh, were recently charged uh, with the murder of a 26-year-old man as well outside a, uh, a Suva nightclub. I, uh, I'm interested to know, actually, Evan, what would, uh, what would your 21-year-old self uh, think of this? Were you out to all hours back in the day? Back when I was a student in Suva, uh, I, I, I can't remember. I think the, 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 night, the, the opening hours were different because right now I think it's until 5 a.m. But back then I'm sure there's, it was a lot earlier than that. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what comes out of that review and where things land on opening hours on nightclubs in Fiji. Oh, well, what's that old saying? Nothing good happens after 2 a.m.? <laughs> you might be right. Right, so staying in Fiji and uh, to a story about a Fiji woman that's fallen victim to human trafficking and this is linked to a job scam. Uh, what, no, what more do we know about this story? Well, luckily uh, she's okay, but she's very lucky. So Fiji's Home Affairs Minister actually shared her story uh, during an address to the House, which the Fiji Times later splashed on their front page. Um, he said she was taken into forced labour uh, in Egypt and had her passport taken away from her. Uh, before managing to escape. However, it sparked a, a number of concerns among immigration officials uh, who will now look at keeping a closer eye on Fijians moving in and out of the country uh, in hopes of ide- identifying some of this suspicious activity that's going on. Um, the Home Affairs Minister went on to say that there's often cases where foreigners will come abroad to Fiji to coerce Fijians uh, into jobs that aren't quite what they should be. Um, I can even remember last month uh, doing a news wrap story where 28 people were, were conned uh, in Nandi when they showed up to the airport uh, for the promise of a job and, uh, and their tickets you know, hadn't been purchased. Yeah, it's certainly getting more headlines recently, with, especially with the growth in seasonal work um, across the Pacific. Uh, there's a big surge of people traveling to uh, Australia, New Zealand for jobs and in other places as well. So it's, um, it's something uh, for people out there to be uh, concerned about and to be aware it's, it's happening and uh, be ready to deal with. Now, yesterday we were talking about high-level uh, delegations into the Pacific. Uh, now Australia's Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Pat Conroy, he's traveling to Samoa and Vanuatu. Do we know why he's heading off 
to those particular countries? So, yeah, he'll land in, in, uh, in Samoa first to meet with uh, Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Mata'afa, uh, as well as Samoa's head of state. Following that, he'll meet with uh, Vanuatu PM Ishmael Kaukasau. And both visits will centre around uh, essentially just strengthening Australia's partnerships and uh, progressing bilateral relations. Topics will include everything from climate change, regional security, uh, sport, as well as uh, labour mobility, um, cyclone recovery, as well as probably the state of Air Vanuatu will also likely come up, given I know the um, Australian uh, Department of Foreign Affairs is helping to uh, to get that airline back in order. Um, and yeah, look, given what we heard earlier today, uh, you wouldn't be surprised if maybe AUKUS uh, is on the agenda as well. That's right, Kyle. And speaking of Air Vanuatu, which you mentioned there, if you stay with us on Pacific Beat, because coming up next, we have a story about how uh, Vanuatu's Melanesian neighbor, Solomon Islands, is helping out with Air Vanuatu's problems. There was a wide range of cancellations over the Easter weekend and even beyond. People are stranded in different parts of the Pacific. But uh, Solomon Airlines is stepping in and flying, um, flying through to uh, pick up the stranded passengers. Uh, more on that coming up, Kyle. Thank you very much for News Wrap. Thank you, Evan. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka. Now, Solomon Islands is helping its neighbor Vanuatu after Air Vanuatu cancelled several flights in the past week. The cancellations affected passengers travelling from Australia and New Zealand. Reports from Vanuatu say the airline's Boeing 737 has been grounded in Australia with mechanical problems. Solomon Airlines has stepped in and is flying stranded passengers through a charter arrangement with Air Vanuatu. Caroline Terriman spoke with Solomon Airlines Chief Executive Officer Gus Krauss. We've done a few uh, charters for them with the Airbus uh, because their Boeing 737 is, uh, is in need of a part and uh, it's been out of action for over a week and I believe that it's coming back online in the next couple of days. So uh, we've been doing helping out with that as well with uh, charters from Auckland to Wheeler and uh, from Brisbane to Wheeler. And we're having some other talks about moving forward with uh, helping each other out with some uh, assistance with uh, other airplanes. It's affected the ability to maintain uh, their own aircraft in a position that, that to get it up and running again. They've had a few problems with the domestic fleet, and uh, that's uh, being also looked at carefully. So we're trying to help out where we can and where they direct us to help out. And we've done already, I think, two flights from uh, Auckland to Wheeler and from uh, Brisbane to Wheeler. And we've got another one planned for tomorrow from Auckland to Wheeler. And uh, uh, we're looking at uh, some future assistance, whether we can uh, we can uh, also schedule our flight through Sento and uh, also our flights that go from Honyar to Wheeler, where they've asked us to see if we can extend it to Auckland. Is, is that a good thing for countries in the region to help each other out uh, when there is... A need? I, I think in all honesty for listeners in the Pacific, I think that uh, it's absolutely a uh, necessary part of humanity that uh, 
when there's a time in need, everybody should uh, go through and help each other out. In this case, uh, in moving forward, uh, we believe there's another carrier operating from Brisbane to Vila, and uh, that will give them some competition. So they, they've got their own uh, future to think about competition and whether they have a need for some assistance. But their aeroplane, the current Boeing, is getting on to eight years, nine years old. And uh, there's some teething problems that they're going through. Uh, the CEO uh, is under pressure, I suppose uh, you could say that, because um, he was left with a lot of issues to resolve. Uh, it's their own internals and with the government. We don't want to get involved in that. But when they call us up uh, to see whether we can help in uh, uh, with the Airbus that we've got, we certainly will look at all the options on the table to help them out, including the domestic flying. Solomon Airlines has also given a twin other aircraft to help out uh, following the twin cyclones. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I had a meeting with the uh, uh, newly appointed CEO, who is an uh, old hand at uh, the job, but he got reappointed. And uh, about three or four weeks ago, we had our meeting. We followed up with another meeting, and uh, it's been agreed that uh, they need a bit of support for their domestic flying. So we agreed that uh, we would support them with uh, a twin otter and crew and engineer. And, uh, and that we sent last week. They've had to uh, complete some paperwork and uh, and uh, civil aviation approval. So uh, the first flight was today to Santo and some of the other local ports in Vanuatu, and it's been successful so far. And, uh, you know, principally, it's there for two months. If they want to extend it, we certainly can look at it. That's Solomon Airlines CEO Gus Krauss speaking there with Caroline Turman about the ongoing help that Solomon Airlines is giving to Air Vanuatu over the cancellation of flights. A tiny beetle is wreaking havoc on Papua New Guinea's coffee industry, and climate change is causing it to spread even further. The coffee borer beetle is a pest that lives in coffee cherries, eating the flesh and damaging the most lucrative part of the plant, the cherry. While the problem is a big concern for farmers, one coffee company is helping control the spread. Edwin Wavite is leading the coffee borer beetle program for Mont P Coffee in Garoka, and he spoke with the ABC's Marion Farr. Coffee berry borer yeah, is reducing the quality of coffee by eating the oddly ledons or endosperms of the coffee, the economic part of it. Right. So does it eat into the berries? The berry borer, it eats the cherry berries inside, the berries where we use it to sell and get money. The berry borer is affecting this part of the coffee where the economic part we use to sell and get money. Yeah, so like the most important part of the plant. Okay, the farmers now, the local farmers, you know, in Papua New Guinea, most of the farmers are smallholders. They own less than 50 or 100 hectares. So the livelihood of the farmer is coffee. They depend alone on coffee, apart from other cash crops. In the highlands of Papua New Guinea, they only depend on coffee. So that's how it's affecting the livelihood of the local farmers. And is it everywhere in PNG? Um, I think due to it was here. In 2017, in some places, but I think due to climate change, giving the right condition for the pest to spread in other centers. 
of the coffee growing areas in Papua New Guinea also. So does that mean the problem is getting bigger? Uh, the problem is getting bigger, but under sustainable management services, Monpi Coffee Export, uh, we try to at least control the spread in the areas where our coffee supply chain were. Right. Can you tell me what you're doing to control the spread and to fix this problem? Currently, we are taking the integrated test management approach or the triple action plan, we would say. Uh, it is the cultural control methods. Uh, we are introducing the broken traps plus the biological control, which is the buvera basiana fungi. We use it to control the pest spread around the infested area. So did you say you're using a fungi to control the spread? Yes, uh, the fungi is called Buvera Paisi, and I think it is used in some areas already, like Indonesia and Hawaii. But we are currently introducing into the IPM system in Papua New Guinea to control the spread. So how does this fungi help control coffee berry borer beetle? Okay, this fungi is naturally grown, but it is not mass produced in the country. We imported it from Indonesia. Okay, how we did it? A powder reform. We mix it with water and then spread over the coffee cherries. All coffee trees. We make sure that the cherries are wet with this fungi. And after two weeks, this fungi started to grow on the cherries. And when CBB tried to enter it, the fungi captured it and killed it. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. And what was the other strategy? Broke up traps. Broke up traps. Uh, it's we used, uh, we said, lua, lua or pheromone to attract the female CBB. Female CBB is the one causing most problem or the one eating the coffee cherries and, you know, making it go bad. So what we did, we used the lua, uh, we used two ethanol and methanol to attract the CBB. They will tell that it was the male there, but indirectly they come and trap there and drown in water. At the base of the trap, we put water. So when the CBB, uh, especially the female ones, they got attracted and came there, they drowned in the water and died. So in a day, like if I, the population was high, we can catch around 10,000 beetles in a day and kill them. Wow. And so are these measures, have these measures been effective? Uh, yes. Currently, we are getting the result and response from farmers that these measures are very efficient and the farmers are requesting for more if we can do training and awareness and also give them with these things so they can control coffee berry borer on their farms. Which area are you doing this work in? Uh, we are doing this work in three provinces in Papua New Guinea, the highlands of Papua New Guinea, which is the Eastern Highlands Province, Western Highlands Province and Juaka Province. And how many farmers are you working with? We are working with almost 3,845 plus farmers. Wow, that's a big a big project. Yes, yes. So we are getting support from our funders from Australia and other parts. That's fantastic. How long has this program been going for? Uh, it is going since 2020. And you mentioned that climate change is causing the beetle to spread. Are you going to expand the program or go to more areas? Yes. Currently, we are expanding the programs uh, to our funders who provide support uh, under the coffee program. 
we try to expand the program to our non-farmers also. Those that who do not supply coffee to us, but they also grow coffee. That's Edwin Waivete, who is in charge of Moni, Monpi Coffee's press control program, speaking there with ABC's Marion Farr. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this Wednesday morning. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow, that's 6am Papua New Guinea time. But join us this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, where Melissa Macon will bring you the, late, the afternoon version of Pacific Beat. But stay tuned right here on ABC Radio Australia, because coming up next is the News Bulletin. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening.